Um, if you are able to, please join me for the scripture and please rise. The scripture can be found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and this is the New International Version. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amen, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliahud, Eliahud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matham, Matham, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I would now like to welcome Pastor Adam Shank this morning. Adam is the associate pastor uh, at North Lima Mennonite Church. Adam has worked as a translation consultant for Wycliffe Bible Translators, helping teams across Africa produce Bible translations in their own languages. He's the father of four sons and one daughter and can be found outdoors hunting and fishing and doing chores on his family farm. And now let us join together and welcome Adam as he brings us this morning's message. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Is that loud enough? Can you hear with this mic here? Okay. Raise it a little more. Or I'll just bring it over. While I'm doing that, I want to say good job reading. That's like cruel and unusual punishment. I, I got a chuckle when I emailed Matthew the text and I just thought, and he told me, oh, well, I need to know the text because someone's going to read it. And I just laughed. I'm like, be a guest speaker and make someone read that. That's hilarious. 
Anyways, you did a good job. Thank you. I appreciate it. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this text. As much as it is a, a tongue twister and foreign and odd to us, I thank you for the core truth found within it. I thank you for the revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear today what you have for us in your word. We thank you for Christ. Make us more like him. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So who are you? What do you do? Where do you live? Where do you come from? Who are your parents? Right? Those are common questions we ask someone when we want to get to know them. Maybe we're not that frank and straightforward, but we want to know identity, right? As we get to know someone, we kind of, we, we got to put them into a framework to better understand who they are. Where do they fit into life? Right? To make sense of a person, to get to know them, we need to find out information. We need context. We need a framework. We need somewhere to put them in to make sense of them. So, for example, some of you might know me or a little bit about me, maybe my family. But let me give you a little context. My name is Adam Jacob Shank. I'm the son of Jeffrey Shank, the son of Carl Shank the son of Walter Shank, the son of David Shank, the son of Jacob Shank, the son of Michael Shank, the son of Henry Shank, the son of Michael Shank, the son of Michael Shank, the son of Christian Shank, the son of Michael Shank, the son of Michael Shank, the son of Ulrich Shank, the son of Johannes Shank, the son of Johannes Shank, the son of Hans Shank, the son of I don't really know who, because that was in the 1400s in Switzerland. Now, a couple things you can notice, or we should take note about my family genealogy, is first, there's a lot of Michaels. There's five of them. So I just said there's no way I'm naming any of my sons Michael. I have no idea why they named so many of their sons Michael. They like the name, apparently. There's a lot of Michaels in there. And the Michael, who was closest to me, that would be my great-great-great-great-grandpa, he moved to North Lima, Ohio in 1830, and then in what was used to be called East, uh, East Lewistown, he bought a farm in 1833. He purchased this farm. It's the farm where I live now. It's the farm where I grew up. It was originally 80 acres, and he purchased it for $15 an acre on June 11th, 1833. $15 an acre, how would you like to do that today? So, I am the seventh generation to live on this family farm. A second thing you can note about my family tree, you can't see it, but I should explain it, is the spelling of the name Shank. So, S-H-A-N-K is not the way it used to be spelled, that's the anglicized way. It used to be spelled S-C-H-E-N-K, and it comes from the German verb Shank or Shanken or something like that, which means to pour. So that name was given to people with the occupation of a butler or a tavern keeper 
or possibly a cupbearer in a medieval court, or what the French call a sommelier, someone who works with wines. In short, all my ancestors were probably in the booze industry, and that's what my name means. <laughs> a third thing to note about my family genealogy is that the man named Henry, that's my great-great-great-great-great, five-time great-grandpa, was the first resident Mennonite bishop in Virginia. He moved to Virginia in 1781 at the age of 24. He married a lady named Anna Reef in 1782 in Rockingham County, Virginia, and he was ordained to the ministry around 1784 and then became the first resident bishop, as far as I know, in 1810 to have responsibility for all the Mennonite churches in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Another interesting fact about my family history is that my ancestors were all Mennonites. They were all Anabaptists from Eagleville in Rothenbach, Switzerland. They moved to Germany in the late 1600s because of persecution by the state church in Switzerland, and then they fled Germany to Peckway Creek in Lancaster County, PA, in September of 1717. Christian Shank came to America with his son, Michael, and his other brothers and sisters, and all these children together were a part of a large group of 363 Mennonites who settled in Lancaster County in September of 1717. There's probably a lot more I could tell you, but there's a little bit of context, a little genealogical identity, if you will, about me. And for me personally, it brings me a lot of significance. It, it, it kind of shows... I mean, it's significant, the fact that I'm even standing here today. I'm from a long, long line of Mennonites going all the way back to the Reformation in Europe. I'm from a long, long line of Mennonites, some who ministered here in the New World, in, in Pennsylvania and in Virginia and even here in Ohio. I'm from a long line of Mennonites that homesteaded and farmed and worked hard with their hands, and by God's grace, I live on a farm, even though it's not my occupation. I still get to go out, get dirty, play in the mud, shovel manure, and all that stuff that I enjoy. So to make sense of someone, like a guest speaker, or Jesus, the Messiah... We need a little context, right? We need to fit this person into a framework, whether it's a genealogical one or a, 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 you know, a work one or something, to try to understand their identity. And that's why today we're looking at this genealogy, right? Starting your life story with a genealogy is not something you do. I've never met anyone who just did what I did. I've never said, hey, nice to meet you. you know, what's your name? And they say, well, I'm Bob, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. We just don't do that. I've met a lot of people, actually, who don't know who their great-grandparents were. Can't even name them. So for me to go back 17 generations is, like, shocking to some people. But starting your life with a genealogy was a very jewish way of communicating right significant information about a person they needed to know who was your dad and who was your dad's dad and who was his dad and so on and that's why matthew is sharing this with us today this is very jewish it's not just simply pointing to historical facts either as we're going to find out 
It's not just like, well, I just need to know who your dad and grandpa and great-grandpa were. There's just so much more that he's communicating here. And not all of it we're going to get to or we'd be here too long. But the main point is, is that Jesus is the rightful Messiah. He is the true Messiah. Matthew's going to help us make sense of the whole story of Jesus that he writes for us in the book of Matthew. He's going to let us know here in this introduction, this, this tongue twister of a genealogy, a little bit about the identity of Jesus. So to better understand what Matthew is teaching us, we're going to consider just three facts about this genealogy. The first one is we're going to look at the designations of Jesus. And then we're going to look at the derivation of Jesus. And just to get another D in there, we're going to look at the deliverance of Jesus. So the designations, the derivation, and the deliverance. So let's look at some of these designations just in verse 1. The text says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here we are, very first verse of the book of Matthew. It's like the thesis statement, we could say. This is who Jesus is. Matthew is showing us his purpose and perspective. And it's a unique meaning for Jewish people. It often just goes right over our head, but it's very unique and important for Jewish people. In this gospel, Matthew is attempting to prove the Messiahship of Jesus in many different ways as he works through. He's showing that Jesus is the rightful one, to the, the rightful heir to the kingdom. He's the one who teaches with authority. He's the one who acts with authority. He is the king of kings. He is the king of the Jews. And so he's writing this to both convert unbelieving Jews and to strengthen the faith of believing Jews. And so right from the get-go, he gives us his thesis statement, we could say. Jesus is the true son of Abraham. Jesus is the true son of David. Jesus is the true Messiah of Israel. That's, what, that's who Jesus is. That's, that's what it means for Jesus to be the rightful heir, all those things, to the promises God made to Israel. But we also get a little glimpse that Jesus isn't just for the Jews. Even in this first chapter, this genealogy, we see that Jesus is for Gentiles because we're going to see, in the third point, that Jesus has several Gentiles in his genealogy. So what Matthew is doing here, he's making this clear. That Jesus has Gentile relatives, he's got Jewish relatives, but he is, in fact, primarily, he is the true son of Abraham. Right? It doesn't just mean he's ethnically Jewish. There's more to it than that. Jesus fulfills all those promises, what we call a covenant made to Abraham, that in Abraham all the nations would be blessed through his seed. Paul highlights that singular in Galatians, the seed of Abraham. Go therefore and make all disciples of or make disciples of all nations. That's how Matthew ends the book. He's, he's kind of cluing us in here in the beginning, mentioning Abraham to what he's gonna command the disciples in the end. Go to all nations. Jesus is a Messiah for all nations. He is the true son of Abraham. But we need to realize too just what a Messiah is, what that term means how important it really is, right? It says this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. Christ, coming from the Greek, Christos, just means to anoint, like with oil. Most of you probably know that if you've been in church very long. Messiah is just a transliteration of the Hebrew, Mashiach, which means the same thing, to anoint. You can anoint anything with oil. It's not really special to term by itself. 
But what's special is the one or the ones who are anointed. So in the Old Testament, there's really only two main groups of people who were anointed. Kings and priests. Primarily kings, but priests could be too. There may be other examples, but those are the two primary, primary groups of people who were anointed in the Old Testament. And they frequently were anointed by a prophet. So an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, a, a, a special leader, anointed, set apart for a special service, separated by God for that unique anointing, that unique purpose. And what was that unique purpose of Jesus and his anointing? Well, his very name reveals it. Any Jewish person who spoke Hebrew would know this. Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew. It means Yah saves, or Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. And that's what the angel told Joseph. He said, you shall call him Jesus because he will save or rescue, deliver his people from their sins. So Jesus, Yeshua, the anointed one, or Yahweh saves, he's also the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He was anointed to save his people from their sins, to deliver his people. Then Matthew throws in another designation, son of David, Jesus, the son of David, right? It's not merely describing his paternal lineage. Like Jesus wasn't literally the son of David. He was the great, 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 great grandchild of David. But he comes from David and he is that rightful ruler who is called the son of David. So when the crowds would cry out something like, son of David, have mercy on me. They were saying, hey, Messiah, King Jesus the rightful one to sit on the throne of David, have mercy on me. And that title goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised David that someone would forever sit on his throne. Son of David, it's just packed with meaning. Son of Abraham, son of David, the anointed, the Messiah, all the nations would be blessed in him. And so as we understand these terms used by Matthew, we, we get a better sense of what Matthew's doing. And I think that sense is often lost on us Gentiles living 2,000 years later. We don't speak Hebrew. We don't know our Old Testaments the way we ought. But Matthew is clearly telegraphing, signaling to us, who is Jesus? I'm going to show you in the next 28 chapters. Jesus' ministry brought fulfillment to all those covenantal promises that God gave to the people of Israel. But it's also, in doing that, it's also bringing all the promises, the covenant that God promised to Abraham and to all the nations. Jesus is salvation. Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus is the anointed of God, Christ, Messiah. Jesus is the kingly son of David. He is the son of David, the offspring of Abraham. He's the blessing of the world. So that's the... Those are the designations of Jesus right here in the get-go. They're just packed with meaning. And these designations probably don't speak much to the average Gentile. They speak volumes to, to his original Jewish audience. But we also, in the hard part of the genealogy, starting in verse 2, going almost all the way to the end, the tongue twister part, we get to see Jesus' derivation, where he came from. And I'm not going to reread that list, so don't worry. But Matthew, we need to realize that he's not simply, he's not just merely writing a list of names. 
kind of like I did or kind of more like Luke does in his genealogy. Right? If Matthew wanted to do that, he could have done that. But instead, Matthew is being a clever Jewish scribe. Right? He's communicating more than he's just writing down. There's a lot of fascinating ways that he does that. We're just going to touch on a few. First, let's see what he's doing, how he groups it up. He very clearly groups it. He tells us into three groups of 14. Why does he do that? What's so significant about 14, 14, 14? Well, the first group deals with the time of the patriarchs, from Abraham to David. The second group deals with the time of the monarchy, from King David to the exile in Babylon. And then the third group deals with what we could call the kingless time, from the time they return from the ex exile in Babylon to the time that Jesus shows up on the scenes. So Matthew sees history, the history of Israel, and these, the, these clear divisions, 14, 14, 14. But what we got to realize is that 14 is significant just simply because it's 7 times 2. Now, I don't want to get too weird on you and go into numerology too much, but we got to realize something that the Jews love to do. They love numbers. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can see that. 7. Yeah, it literally means seven. It also comes from the root for rest, and it also has to do with God's, God's divine perfection. So often we see seven as a chosen place to stop, you know, in a list because it's, it's dealing with completeness, with fullness, with perfection. Another thing that Matthew does in, in verse one, which we don't really see in our translation, he says this is the genealogy of Jesus, but literally it says Genesis. In the Greek, it says Genesis. Now, there are other ways he could have said this. But he says, this is the Genesis of Jesus, alluding probably to Genesis and what we call the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And then he blocks this into chunks of 14, or we could say instead of three 14s, six sevens. You sticking with me? It's, it's, I'm hopefully not getting too weird on you. Genesis 2.4 says, this is the book of the Genesis of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So the Bible starts with Genesis, the creation of all things, the heavens and the earth. Matthew starts with Genesis here, of Jesus, that is. He frames Israel's history into a similar pattern as the book of Genesis. Six sevens or three fourteens. You know, we have six days of creation. On the seventh day was God's promised rest, we could say. So Jesus really is the culmination of Israel's history, right? It all points to Jesus. Just as the seventh day of creation was the culmination of God's work in creation, so Jesus is the culmination of God's work in redeeming Israel. Jesus ushers in that seventh seven, we could say. Jesus is that year of jubilee, we could say, that year of deliverance, that year of setting the captives free, that year of, 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 of paying back debts or forgiving debts. Seven, that, that Hebrew number of perfection in the fact that Jesus is it. He's at the very end of those six sevens. It communicates so much to a Jewish reader. He's the perfect one we've been waiting for. As I just mentioned, there's three sections. The first section starts with Abraham. Great place to start. The father of the faith. You start with Abraham. And so Matthew obviously and logically starts with Abraham because this is a very Jewish book. It's the most Jewish gospel. 
In this section of 14, it ends with the name of David. Great place to end. The king of kings, right? He's, he's the great king of all of Israel's history. Who's the greatest king you can think of? David. David, to whom this promise was, was made by God in 2 Samuel 7, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. There's possibly also, we won't get into it, some numerology going on in here where Matthew is conveying more important information. We don't need to go into all those details. The second section of 14, which covers most of the monarchy, it begins with Solomon and ends with Jeconiah. In this section, everyone would know, all the people, all the Jews who studied their Old Testament, they knew this was the downward spiral. This was the time of the monarchy where it just went from the height of David to down at the bottom with Jeconiah. In fact, God brought upon that generation all the curses of the covenant mentioned in Deuteronomy 29. He promised them, if you don't keep this covenant, all these curses will come upon you. And the worst part of the curse was exile. And then after that, there is promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30 to come back. Matthew, as it's been noted by many people, he omits several names in this section of kings. You go to the book of Chronicles and you can see there's a whole list of kings. Matthew just cuts them out. So some people think Matthew is being dishonest. Some think he's being inept. But that's not the point. We have to realize Matthew is not being merely historical. right? Son of so-and-so doesn't mean literally that they were their first descendant, the son. It means someone who derived from someone, and it's used a whole bunch of other ways in Hebrew. So Matthew's doing this on purpose. He wants to keep this set of 14, 14, 14, because he's communicating to us theological truth just as much as historical truth. There's no problem here. Matthew is not inept. He's not deceptive. He's writing a theological genealogy pointing to the identity of Jesus Christ, and he does that by being a really, really crafty scribe giving us these different sections of the genealogy. So he omits a few names. There's other oddities in this list, like there's the changing of the spelling of names. Matthew did not have a spelling problem. We can see that throughout the rest of the book. He, he does some interesting things that any, any astute Jew would notice. He's communicating these theological rich uh, meanings and, and themes, and he's highlighting these, these double sevens or 14, God's perfection in all of this, God's orchestration of the entire history of Israel, all for one purpose, pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. In this last and third section of 14, it's from the exile to Jesus. So the first two names in this list, Jeconiah, that actually gets repeated. It's, in the, it's the last name in the second 14. Now it's the first name here, going all the way to Shealtiel. It comes from 1 Chronicles. Those two names come from 1 Chronicles chapter 3. But then there's these other names that we don't know where they come from. We don't have the list. They're not in the Bible. They're not in the Old Testament. They're not in any recorded list. But it doesn't really matter, right? And there's some oddities with, once again, with this list and, and spelling of names and a few weird things. But it's not a problem because we have to realize what Matthew is doing here. He's communicating rich theological significance to his readers. It's a trifecta of 14s. So-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. And it all points to Jesus, 
right? It's that perfect Sunday school answer that we've always heard of, right? You don't know the answer, you say Jesus. That's what Matthew's doing, pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of it all. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the creation of the earth, the creation, the history of Israel, it's all pointing to Jesus. These six sevens, the seventh perfect day of God's rest of deliverance, pointing to the anointed of God, the Christ. Now, lastly, we'll consider the deliverance of Jesus. And we're going to do this just by looking at five unique people in this genealogy. Five women. You don't put women in a paternal genealogy. It's just not what you do. And yet here Matthew does it. And you don't put suspicious characters, women, in a genealogy with a shady history. Matthew does it. All five have very questionable histories, we could say. First one is Tamar. If you know the story, she was probably a Canaanite. It doesn't say that, but more than likely she was a Canaanite, not a Jew. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She was a widow, and Judah was supposed to give her another son to marry. And he didn't. That was the law. That was a part of the custom and the law of that day and age. She didn't have a son from the first husband, so Judah was supposed to give her another son. He doesn't do it, so what does she do? She comes up with this crafty plan. We won't get too, too much in detail here because it's pretty dirty. Okay, she's going to dress up like a prostitute. She knows the kind of guy Judah is. She knows that when Judah goes out to work far away with his sheep, that he visits prostitutes. So she dresses up like one. She entices him, knows where he's going to be, keeps herself veiled apparently, and he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. If you don't know the rest of the story, I think it's Genesis 30 around there. Rahab. She's in the list. Everyone knows Rahab the prostitute. That's like a part of her name. Matthew the tax collector. Rahab the prostitute. In Jericho, a city that God told his people to utterly destroy. Don't save anyone. And yet somehow Rahab makes it out because she had faith. She, she, she heard the spies. She heard their story. She hid them. And God rescues her. Ruth. Moabitess. If you know your Old Testament, the Moabites were not to marry with the Jews. That's a no-no. Right? The Moabites had mocked God's people when they were fleeing Egypt, and so God pronounced a curse on them and, and told them basically, never intermarry, don't be friends, don't hang out together. And here we have Ruth, a Moabitess, marrying into the people of God and being in Jesus' genealogy. Bathsheba. We don't know if she was a Jew that married a Hittite or if she was a Hittite that married a Hittite. It's very possible she was a Hittite as well. We don't know. King David lusted after her. You know the story. Committed adultery with her. Got her pregnant. Killed her husband. And here she is in the genealogy. And then there's Mary. Beloved Mary. We all praise her. You know, and you got Catholics. It goes even beyond that. But think about her situation, just from a human perspective. Mary, probably a teenager, unmarried, pregnant out of wedlock. She wasn't a queen. She wasn't nobility. She wasn't a prostitute or anything. But here she is, pregnant, poor. Not someone you really want 
in your genealogy. So five women with questionable stories, situations, they should not be listed in a paternal genealogy. There's, there's Gentiles, probably four of them. There's prostitutes, at least one and someone who dressed up like one, an adulteress, supposedly, or a real adulteress, and then a Jewish teenager who got pregnant out of wedlock by an unknown father. And yet here they are, these women with shady backgrounds, and they're in Jesus' genealogy. All these women delivered male babies, and all of them would end up being delivered by King Jesus. Mary herself, who delivered Jesus, laid him in a manger. She would be delivered by Yeshua, by Yahweh saves, by Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. God worked through Mary. God worked through, through, through Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. God will do his work through whomever he chooses. Right? The most unlikely person is a perfect person for God to work through. Not someone who's noble, not some king or queen, not someone who's rich and famous. Unlikely. Whether it's a prostitute or a poor person or a pregnant teenager. God can and will do his work through that person. And God is doing this work because it's all pointing to Jesus, right? Just as Jesus is the culmination of creation and of Israel's history, right now we all also, through faith, are being brought into Christ. It's one of Paul's favorite themes, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's the main point of this tongue twister of a genealogy. God is faithful to his covenant promises to Israel. God is faithful to the nations of the world through his promise with Abraham. Right? God is faithful through Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the son of David, Jesus the son of Abraham. God had a plan from the beginning. It has not changed. Right? There is no plan B. God had a plan from the genesis of the world to the genesis of his creation, of his chosen people, to the genesis of Jesus, to the genesis of the creation of the body of Christ. God has a plan. It's all being unfolded throughout history. It's been moving forward towards Christ. It's going to end in Christ, and we get to participate in that. God offers a new identity for all people in Christ. Right? Many of us maybe come from shady backgrounds, like the five women. Or, or some of you have a past you're not proud of. Or, or some of you don't have a very praiseworthy family tree, or you can't even go back a couple generations. Some of you find your identity constantly in your past sins. Or some giant past mistake you made that somehow has shaped you and formed you still guides you. Some of you, you know, find your identity in, in your work or your successes even, or all your, your, your accomplishments, all these things that make you feel good. It, it's true, those things do give us some identity. You can't help that. You can't help for your past sins to not shape you. You can't help for your successes to not shape you. You can't help for your you know, your genealogy, a long line of Mennonites to not shape who you are. But that's not where your true identity lies. You have to remember that as an individual and as a church, your identity is not in any of these things. 
Your true identity, your lasting identity, your eternal identity is found in Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other true and lasting identity. In Christ you become a new creation. All your former sins are like washed away. They're like rubbish. All your former successes are like rubbish. Because it all points to Christ. Just like this genealogy. He's the one. It all points to him. Jesus is the the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah of the world. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our salvation. He's our rescuer. He's our deliverer. He's the one who transforms us day by day through his spirit because Jesus is our identity. Right? So look to Jesus. Look to Jesus this year. Right? Make Jesus more and more of your identity and make those past sins or successes less and less of your identity. Jesus is your number one. Make him number one in what you think, in what you say, in what you do. Make Jesus your identity in your family, in your church here, in your work, in your wherever, your hobbies. Make Jesus your number one, your identity, because that's where your identity is. It's in Christ. That's the only identity that will last. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this genealogy and the rich truth found therein. We thank you that it just all points to Christ. He's it. There is nowhere else to go. So I pray you'd give everyone here eyes to see and ears to hear that as they go out from here, as they live for Christ this week, as they, as, they, as they wrestle with past sins, as they maybe put too much pride in their successes or their work or their accomplishments, help them to find that their true identity is only in Christ. We thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done, for what you are doing, and what you will do in Christ. And it's in his name that I pray.